Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the I Want to Be a Producer podcast, sponsored by Flying Penguin Graphics, audio production by Kieran Nemont. And here's your host, Curtis Brown. Hello, folks, and welcome to I Want to Be a Producer, the podcast for emerging producers and creatives wanting to know how it all begins and how to get where they're going. I'm your host, Curtis Brown, and of course, I am joined by our audio engineer, Kieran Nemont. Kieran? Hello, Mr. Brown. How are you, sir? Very well, and yourself? Good, good, man. It's a, it's a beautiful day. I'm going golfing pretty soon, so uh, nice, nice. can't beat that on a Sunday afternoon. But man, this is it, eh? Season season two comes to an end. This is our final episode, man. Oh, yeah. I didn't even realize that, actually. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, well, trust me. We're rhythm. The- it's good. Yeah, I know. I know. It's true. You do end up getting in a rhythm when you get all these guests on that it's like week after week after week that it actually ends up being really, really nice. Um, yeah, I just wanted to say some thank yous because um, obviously now we've ended another season, another, I think it was nine episodes. Well, eight guests, nine episodes because we did the highlight episode, which has been our yeah. least, least listened to episode. What a, su- <laughs> what a surprise. The one where, the one where it's about where you and me are talking, no one gives a shit. <laughs> Um, no, I, I just wanted to say, um, I just wanted to say some thank yous for Jake Foy for all our promotional graphics, um, which we share on all our social media. Uh, Kieran, of course, to you, my friend, for making us not sound like we're talking on cups and strings. Um, I appreciate that always. Casey (laughs) Klein for lending your voice to the intro. Uh, Flying Penguin Graphics, uh, there are Dan Mackey down here in Surrey. Uh, Thank you so much for uh, sponsoring the podcast. Uh, If you ever need anything, it's flying underscore penguin underscore graphics. Send them a DM. It's just a guy, you know, he was just a hobby that got out of hand, so good for him. Uh, and of course, all our guests uh, for taking time to come on the podcast, sharing their words of wisdom, so much insight. Uh, you know, there's so much insight this season. I mean, there, there's always going to be a lot of insight on this podcast, obviously, given what the given what we're talking about, given the, the subject matter. But it was just such, a, I always have such a good time talking to all these producers and, and, and learning so much. Like as an emerging producer myself, I'm always trying to take the advice that I'm learning from them and implement it in my day-to-day working as a producer. And I hope it's working out for everyone else too, because I'm really enjoying it. Kieran, are you enjoying yourself? Well, of course, sir, of course. Yeah, or else you wouldn't be doing it, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't have to deal with no, our text messages. It's, it's good fun. It really is good fun. Yeah, and you're learning stuff too, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Would you say that there's anything specific you learned this season as opposed to last season? I think uh, the common thing that I take away from most of the guests is that they're saying like none of them had a clue what they were doing in the beginning, but they just did it. And honestly, like that, that's probably the main thing I can take away is like just do it, man. Like if you have an idea, if you have a... If you have a plan, if you have a dream, like just honestly, just go for it. Like, and that everyone's lost when it comes to the finances. Like everyone yeah. starts off and everyone does it in a different way too. Like remember Ken is like, hey, listen, you just, you, you list out a hundred people and you just call each and every one of them and then you sit down with them. And then you have a Cody Lassen where he's like, listen, he's like, you just tell everyone, you tell everyone about it. You know what I mean? And it's, it's really about getting the word out about your project once you've, obviously, I guess when you've been in the pitching phase, when you're. Pardon me. When you're at that phase in the pitching phase, when you can tell people about your project for them to invest in it, and you know, and a lot of it's, I think, you know, and I, I think just doing it is is the largest thing that a lot of people yeah. people say, and I think that's such a correlation kind of into what you were saying is that it's like no, no one knows what they're doing at the at the start, but starting 
is something that you know that you can do. And I think that's super important too, you know? And I mean, I, I would just I would just hate for there to be a million dollar idea out there and someone's just too scared to do it because they didn't know what they were doing, right? So that's what um Ken that's what Ken started with. He said there's plenty of people out there with million dollar ideas, but until you do something with it, your idea is not worth anything. Yeah, exactly. It's true. It's true. That's exactly it. Um, yeah, and it's just so much wisdom. I, I I've been really enjoying talking to the different producers that also like you know one of our guests today was a director in New York City. So you know how has that shaped his lens as a producer when he's choosing a creative team or something? Same as like how we had with Danielle Torrento. When I go, well, you are a casting director. How has that shaped for you as a producer? I mean, that eliminates a completely. That eliminates a job for her, really, because she just can cast her own show. She knows what the hell she's doing, right? So I just yeah. think I just think it's been really, really insightful this season getting different people in different that are in different venues as well as the producing world. So, so I just I just really enjoyed this season and I'm really excited. So season three will be hopefully starting to drop in a month or so. I got to start sending out the emails and getting everything lined up. And uh, I'm hoping you're all enjoying it. Um, you know, follow us on our socials, which are always in the notes, as well as our guests. And uh, anyway, I think it's time to get to our um, to get to our uh, episode this week, and it's a really good one. We've got another two guests on, and they're so funny. They're just like a couple of guys who like you. You feel like honestly, these two, you could sit down and have a beer with them, like the first time that you meet them, and it's and it's like you've known them for ten years. So, Kieran, I don't want to I don't want to hold up. I've been uh, blabbering on too long, so take it away, buddy. Our guest today sort of had the trajectory of Larry Page and Sergey Brin, the creators of Google. But instead of sitting in a garage forming a company, our guest sat down for a drink in the borough market one Sunday where producer one said, you'd be a great producer. And producer two said, oh, thanks very much. And producer one responded with, do you want to be involved in Sweeney Todd and raise some money? And producer two said, yeah, I'll give it a go. Skip forward eight years and they are now a Tony and an Olivier award-winning duo producing some of the most successful musicals internationally and on Broadway in the West End. Producer one trained at Leicester Polytechnic with a specialism in arts management and producer two trained as an actor at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. Together they have produced Come From Away, The Pajama Game, Memphis, True West, Bitter Wheat, Betrayal, Ghost Stories, Plaza Suite, and many more. Producer one was the executive producer at the Old Vic for 11 years and would have been a hockey player if he wasn't a producer. Producer two was a director in New York City and would have ended up in the private equity world if he wasn't a producer. And the first West End show they produced together was the first West End show I ever saw. Welcome to the I Want to Be a Producer podcast, Joseph Smith and John Brandt. Thank you very much. Yes. <laughs> I just found out some stuff about Joe that I didn't know. Oh, they... that was good. Yeah, I feel like I'm at my own funeral. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me tell you, the stage knows everything, and I had to, and I used up all my articles because you only get like five free articles. So I was using them all to look up you guys. Anyway, thank you guys so much for coming on the show. And Joe, I'm, would that be have been an ice hockey player or or a field hockey? No, a field hockey player. I'm afraid, although it's not strictly speaking a professional sport in the UK. So how I would have made a living out of it, I don't know. But I, I definitely. Uh, that was my sport through school and college. Um, I know you both have come from different backgrounds, Joe in arts management, John is an actor. So how did you guys both get into producing? Uh, well, I'll just kick off really quickly before John jumps in. Uh, you know, the, the bottom line is my parents ran a very small theater in a little town about two hours from London, Wisbech in Cambridgeshire. 
and I threw myself into it from a very early age, doing stuff on stage, backstage, lighting, sound, front of house, acting, and just really caught the bug from there as a kid doing all that stuff. And I guess um, where, where, where I entered it professionally, or certainly from the latter stages of my, of my education, was, a, was just a, a kind of inside knowledge that um, I wasn't cut out to be on stage. So where else do you go if you just enjoy all these other elements? And um, I, and I stumbled across a degree that um, specialised in in arts management, which I guess you know, fast forward thirty years, probably would have been called producing now. But at the time, I think that word wasn't very sexy or used very much, so it was called arts management. So yeah, I st- stumbled into it that way, really. And, um, and 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 yeah, but the key thing really was knowing I didn't want to be on stage, right. And what about you, uh, John? Well, it's, it's actually not that dissimilar, to be honest. I mean, I, my parents weren't in theatre at all, but I went to a um, I went to a kind of part-time drama school from when I was a little kid at the weekends and kind of fell in love with acting. Didn't do it at university, actually, but afterwards went to, went to New York to train at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts and, and did three years there. And the, and the third year is what they call the company, so... By that point, you've whittled down from like 100 to 15 and, and you do shows. So you're in the rehearsal room for like four weeks to five weeks and then you do about a week of shows. And what I kind of realised was that I loved being in the rehearsal room, but I didn't, I didn't, I used to get quite bored on stage and, and acting, acting wasn't for me. I did one show out there in New York, someone will watch over me, but pretty soon I realised that acting wasn't for me, but I, that I did want to be in rehearsal room and I did want to be surrounded by that environment. So when I moved back to, I came back on holiday to London and actually ended up staying. And, and, then, and then the next journey was kind of three years of some teaching, some directing uh, and, and, and some producing on a really low level. And, and I feel like in this industry, if you allow it, you eventually find your role. And I started doing a bit more producing and then, um, then met Joe uh, when we met Joe actually in like 2008 when he just, um, for some advice, really, when he'd been doing Spring Awakening, Joe, I think, right? That would have been. Yeah. Bringing it over, yeah. And um, we stayed in touch alongside a friend of mine, Andy Barnes. Uh, we produced a show called Departure Lounge, and and it kind of went from there. And that is that is an absolutely true story about us sitting in Borough Market. That is, that is 100% factual. I remember it quite well. But I knew that, you know, I knew that I wanted to be in a rehearsal room and I wanted to be in the industry, and it just took me a while to work out where my place was. And and so I know you both were friends, as you just mentioned, in 2008 when uh, about Spring Awakening. And now you've become business partners. And we actually just had on our last episode two romantic partners who became business partners. So <laughs> what should you look for in a producing partnership if you're about to enter one, especially with a friend where delicate subjects can arise? Well, you know, it, it, the whole thing's pretty, pretty, um, you know, John and I, John originally from that first question, joined another company that I that, that had already been established I had with another partner mm-hmm. um, as a kind of associate uh, um, with the company. And for reasons that are too boring to go into on this podcast, that partnership kind of ended. And and uh, John and I, uh, you know, this was at, like after the Sweeney Todd thing, because after the Sweeney Todd thing, John then, because he did that as an independent producer. John, mm-hmm. John was working with me at the company and then... Um, it was quite clear we were getting on really well. So when the other partner stepped back, John really stepped into not not stepped into that partner's shoes, but became 
the 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 new partner within the company, if you see what I mean. And we changed the name of the company and kind of went on from there. I mean, I I my whole thing about work, work working with people is I it's I find it really difficult to work with people that you know this intimately in terms of a business unless you have a kind of common understanding and unless you can be friends and ultimately unless you can have a beer with them. And right. I think maybe that was the tricky thing about the previous business relationship. It didn't quite work. It maybe was 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 not the right kind of thing. But even when John and I disagree or, you know, have robust debates about things, ultimately it still still boils down to, you know, where you sit sit down and and have a drink and 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 figure it out. And, right. and also as well, you you have to compliment each other, don't you? And often John is, you know, a bit more public facing than me within the company and maybe I'm a bit more behind the scenes and a bit more, um, you know, kind of wonkish on the producing side of things, but he's certainly a bit more of the face of us as well. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because that's right. You have to, you have to, um, it does boil down to being able to, to, to be social with each other and being able to, um, you know, you're not always going to agree ultimately, and you can't be sensitive about that. And you have to accept that you're not going to agree and you have to be able to have robust conversation about that. But then you've also got to be able to not carry that conversation forward. You know, you've got to be able to cut it off at some point. So you give your, you always give yourself time to breathe and you give yourself time just to have a very human relationship as well. And you do have to compliment yourself, each other, absolutely, because as, as soon as you're not doing that and as soon as you're com- competitive, then you're never, ever going to, be moving forward as positively as you can. And what me and Joe always talk about is like, if one of us is really strongly against an idea, that's fine. We won't do it. That's right. fine. And so it, that trumps someone being really for an idea, to be honest. And we've never really got into that position because we always just discuss it and we'll always generally come to, you know, quite, um, in quite, come to a decision in quite a relaxed manner but we've always stood by that if one of us profoundly disagrees with something we just won't do it and that's that you know right yeah and, so. and i think the common trend is is having the same trajectory as well right you can always have different ideas but as long as you're trying to reach the same end point i think it ends up working out well and as you say you can just sit out and have a beer with each other right and and, and yeah and also it. you're always you're always going to do as people, you're always going to do things wrong, right? Yeah, well, and actually, it's quite good to have a mate there who goes, ah, "I think you, I think you made a mistake there," or "I don't right. think that was right." And 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 if you and if you trust that person, you go, oh, "Okay, well, uh, uh, okay, I get that." And, yeah, you know, so I you're also think it's continually... about. Sorry, John. Well, I also think it's about being sensitive enough to know where maybe you don't quite agree with someone, but sometimes you're like, I'm going to let that one slide because I, I I don't need to die on that hill. Yeah. Don't need to <laughs> picking die your battles, hill. picking your battles. Yeah, and, right? and, yeah. and, and it's not like it's ad- adversarial, but like there's times when someone will be like, you know, John will be like, I really want to pursue that, that kind of direction for something. And I'll be like, well, I'm not that keen on it, but to be honest, I don't have enough reasons that, that I wouldn't do that because this is a partnership and if it wasn't a partnership, I would be making all the sole decisions, but we've chosen not to do that. We want to be a right. partnership. And I guess that's the other fundamental thing about it is producing is, I always say this to some of the, in the, some of the teaching sessions I do, it's a pretty lonely business for a collaborative art form, mm. you know, producing. Because ultimately the buck stops with you, the risk stops with you, the problems will stop with you. You know, do you know what I mean? There isn't yeah. anyone else you can go to once they get to you, once you, you get, you're the decision maker. So to have two of you sharing that is far more um, satisfying, I think, and worth the 
extra work you have to do navigating the decisions, if you see what I mean. Yeah, I totally yeah. understand. I totally understand. Yeah, Go ahead. and I suppose finally, to, to, to you know, I know we've talked about di- differences and how we manage them, but we're also quite good at going, the other person is the right person to deal with that. Right. We're quite good at going, you know what, I'm not the right person to deal with this. You're better to deal with this. So right. we're also quite, we're just good at kind of managing managing you know how our relationship and our producing relationship right know? well i'm glad i looped you both in for this i got you both on yeah, this. thank you. Uh, yeah, you did, yeah. so i know you both produced memphis with uh junkyard dogs and they had been fans of come from away and they kept asking you to see it and i think it was john you went to la jolla and joe you saw it in seattle so and you said <laughs> yes right away after you, that you wanted to be involved right john i heard i think you said it, it was the least commercial decision you've ever made because you walked out and you said i just want to be involved and uh which i don't blame especially when you're getting pitched an idea for a small canadian musical about 911 right uh so what do you look for when you're looking to choose a musical god that's a really tough one and actually come from a way kind of changed my my whole mindset on that actually I mean, it's so funny, me and Joe joke about this, that it's no hardship that I think I did five or six days in California and then I asked him to go to (laughs) to Seattle for like a day and a half. Yeah, for like (laughs) a day and a half as well. He had to go over a weekend, I think. Um, But um, uh, listen, you know, a a, a while ago I would have told you, well, you need a a brand, you need a, a star, you know, and I'm sure you still do need those things. But you know what? Come from away, changed my whole thinking on that. I just, I just knew I wanted to be a part of it. I was really lucky that Joe knew he wanted to be a part of it. I just saw a great human story that I believed audiences would want to see, and I saw a piece of art that I believed audiences would appreciate. And I think actually, when it boils down to it, you can paint things, you can add things on top of it, but ultimately, it comes down to the fact that is it a piece of theatre that you believe enough people are going to want to see? I mean, honestly, you know, that, yeah. and I know that sounds simplistic, but, you know, that's what I felt with Come From Way. I was like, oh, my God, I'm a fan. I love it. And I think other people will love it. And I actually never doubted it. And I, that's rare. I didn't think we would be like what it became. Well, yeah. I remember even when we were going on to Broadway and um, one of our co-producers, you know, our advance wasn't massive and blah, blah, blah. And I said to him, "Don't worry, people are going to see it and they're going to love it." I just, I just loved it. I loved it. I was a fan, and it was so it wasn't a commercial decision. And then Joe went out and um, had a had a slightly different experience, actually, and uh, tells a story about what happened after the performance. Joe, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I love the show. It was, you know, the vibe of the music and just the energy of it all. And and I think the thing. But I, you know, I, I guess in my, I'm, you know, I'm slightly older than John, so maybe I'm a little less, I'm a little more uh, cynical, or what have you. I was still in that space of going, well, how's that going to work alongside the canon that we knew existed on Broadway and to some extent right. the West End? And part of the reason for us getting involved right at the start or close to the start was the negotiation over, you know, a partnership in the states would lead to running running it or leading the partnership in the UK in the UK you know and all that kind of stuff so there's all those decisions playing on your mind but I think it was um without getting too dark it was the weekend of that horrible um terrorist attack in Paris the backland one at the nightclub which was just horrific and we don't need to go on about that but you know all the all the (laughs) bizarrely all these tragic events like like that and there's been others all resonated so specifically with the story because 
what comes after the tragedy is a lot of um, is a lot of the smaller stories of heroism and 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 the way people selflessly you know looked after or cared for each other or or saved each other actually and and I think that weekend had the I was in Seattle had the weight of that event um, on on its shoulders to some extent mm-hmm. no and with the subject manager subject matter of the show but also at the end of the show I think there was such a common kind of um, experience that's had in the theatre that there was a talkback after the show. I guess you call them talkbacks in the States. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we yeah. call them post-show discussions in a rather formal way. Um, sounds a bit more like medicine. Uh, at, at any rate, I, I, I thought, oh, well, you know, it's that classic thing. The assistant director comes on, has a kind of God mic, says, you know, anyone who wants to stay for the post-show discussion, come down to the front. There are probably about yeah. 50 people. The whole audience didn't move. Wow. The whole 650, 700 people sat in their seats and I was like I have never ever seen that in any show in the however many years I've worked in the industry where where the whole audience are like I want more information I want to hear what other people think of it I want to reflect on what I think of it and what it is and that that's the point I knew it would be a I mean it's not a Hamilton phenomena but it's a it's a it's a kind of phenomena in 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 the sense that um the audience response universally on all five productions where wherever it's played in the world has been the same you know just that kind of desire for um sharing understanding empathy you know community and and enjoyment ultimately and the and and the crux being it's about you know or or it's the, the the starting place for it is a really tragic event and that's often the way in the in life, isn't it? You know, you, you learn the most from from things that are kind of fairly dark and tragic, or one hopes to think that you do to make things better. If you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And you find the you find the light and the hope, yeah. right? And I think that's what that whole it, it it really boils down to that at the core is the hope and the and the light at the in the darkest of times there is still light yeah. that it, that will be shown. Yeah, and just as a footnote before before you move on, you know, yeah. the, then the text exchange with John was John texting me at, you know, seven o'clock in the morning UK time, which was the <laughs> end of the performance, uh Seattle time saying saying uh, you know, like what did you think? And I said, I won't do the expletive bit, but I basically went <laughs> asterisk, 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 me, full stop. I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? It's greatest. Um, it's greatest challenge is its its greatest uh, selling point. We always say because mm-hmm. it's very difficult to tell someone about come from away. It's if you try and sell it, you're doing it a disservice. Yeah. So what tends to happen is you 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 try not to really tell people the story. You just get people through the door because mm-hmm. when people leave the theatre, they're on. They have, they've had such a journey that they just t- say to their friends, "You've got to see this musical come from away." And people go, well, "What's it about?" And people go, "I'm not telling you. Just go and see it." I know you mentioned uh, Joe just just in there that you know when you saw it, you were thinking of like what it would be for the lead producer when you're coming to the UK. So I wanted to ask you both. You've both produced on Broadway and the West End. So does the producing job differ when producing for a Broadway show than a West End show? If so, how? Because I know there's a lot of different Broadway investing with accreditation, and I just know it costs so much more as well. Yeah, I mean, I you know John will jump in. I mean, my I mean, I lived and worked there for four years. Um, right. 2002 to 2006 so was kind of firsthand involved in it as a kind of resident more you know so to speak but then did uh, you know ironically a lot of Broadway producing once I'd come back to the UK so I think over the last 15 years the kind of distance both 
professionally and collaborative and stuff has got a lot less between the two communities, certainly. I mean, look, there's some obvious things like the language is different, some of the deal terms are different and stuff like that. And I think you're right. There's a much bigger pool of what they call in the States producing investors, you know, so mm. people get credit for shows, come to the occasional meeting, you know, and, and feel like they're being listened to. But really, the, the key decisions are being made by the lead producers. That's right. not to say it's co- not collaborative. It's just collaborative in a, in a slightly different way. I right. think we find it's a little different over in the UK. Like most of the material we produce in the UK come from Way Aside, which has a whole team of rabid and and committed you know producers and investors on the show but most of the projects we'd we'd do in the in the uk we would either solely produce or produce in partnership with someone and that's often a product of the fact that it's much cheaper to produce over here it just is yeah you know the, the economic model is is so much more affordable particularly for plays so we can capitalize a play over here between five or six hundred thousand pounds and probably, you know, for True West, for example, mm-hmm. and, pro- and probably look to just bring one partner on board for that who we're going to share everything with more or less equally. We'll still raise money from investors, but effectively they'll just be investors in the show. They won't be named on the billing and all that sort of stuff. Over in the States, you know, when you do, when you do plays, you're still going to have 10, 20 people who have got different levels of producerial involvement. But ultimately, the general partners or the managing partners, as we call them in the UK, are really the key decision makers. And, and any um, input from the, from the kind of um, other investing producers is always directed through those guys. So I would just say, you're producing-wise, it's probably a bit more of a management exercise in the States than it is in the UK. I would, I would definitely say that. And I think that's a product of the of the size of the kind of um, budgets and the money you're talking about, because mm-hmm. you've got to make those series of um, concessions and collaborative approaches because you need more people to put the show on more right, you know, in yeah. terms yeah. Of, of financially. And I think, you know, I think if you'd asked us that question a decade ago, we would have had, it would have been a much more defined answer. I think things would have been much clearer. I mean, you, as Joe says, you have the obvious rules. The unions are stronger on Broadway across the board. Mm-hmm. You know, you have you have real management in terms of time management of what the unions can and can't do. The theatre deals are different. But but ultimately, over the last decade and before, but certainly over the last decade, we've, we've become much more global. So actually, the differences get, get less and less all the time. There's a difference in approach from how English people are to how Americans are, for sure. Absolutely. But apart from those kind of things, I think as we move, as we've moved through this decade and as, sorry, as we move through last decade and as we move through this decade, we're becoming more of an international society and our working practices are getting closer and closer to each other. So, Joe, I know you were the chief executive of Stage One. We've had Amina, uh, Mina Hamid, and Katie Lipson on the show, who are both superstars, who both went through Stage One. And I know you've been the head for over 10 years and even doubled the amount of de- development programs. So, how important is mentorship? for a producer and other than stage one how would you recommend someone get in touch with the producer for a mentorship or for questions or whatever yeah, well, well you know i mean it, it's crucial because i, I you know I, I, you know what what we're really going on here in terms of minor john's partnership there was definitely a mentor quality to that in the early stages because he was an associate producer on the little musical departure lounge mm-hmm. um, we did and then came on board on Sweeney Todd, and I know learned a lot from that as well. So I don't believe we would have got into a business relationship if he hadn't have um, 
learn and from me in from those experiences and now i think you know the the quality of our relationship is much more equal and 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 balanced out but certainly mm-hmm. that's where it started so i'm sure john will speak to the importance of that those, those kind of things but it's it's the bedrock of the stage one thing and i think the challenge as you've rightly pointed out is how you form those relationships because you know there's a lot of people who will receive unsolicited emails saying, you know, more or less, I'd really love to meet you and learn from you. And a lot of the times those things aren't returned. So, you know, that's no fault of that particular producer. They might just be busy or don't have the bandwidth for it. Or I don't have the aptitude for or the patience for those kind of things. And and nor should they absolutely always have to. Mm -hmm. So I think the thing with stage one has always been that the mentorship is a kind of framework that sits within all the different programs on the uh, that we do apprenticeships bursaries and the training stuff we do because it, it, it outside of the money it's the most crucial thing because how else do you get on in the industry because what you've got to remember is a lot of these people and john's included in this don't formally train in producing in any way shape or form no. so their experience all comes from either doing it or having knowledge you know passed on to them or learning you know, on the job or what have you. So I don't know. I think my, lastly, my, my advice would be that it, it, it's just, I mean, it seem, seems a silly thing to say, but it's just really worth right at that, that starting place, not trying to get mentorship from, you know, Cameron McIntosh or, you know, someone at the Sonia Friedman. Yeah, yeah, start, yeah. Start with the, you know, the Katie Lipsons and the people who are at, uh, the you know the rung on the ladder a couple of places or one place above you and start there don't always aim for the for the moon straight away as much as you would love that you know st- start with that peer group that's just a, that's just above you rather than 10 or 20 years ahead of you if you see what I mean so that would be my point because I think those people will have been through mentor experiences recently will possibly have a bit more time and a bit more inclination to pass on their skills yeah, and it will be it will be direct it will be kind of direct experience, direct recent experience, which is right. going to be so key. It won't be kind of bigger picture kind of you know hypothetical things that actually those producers maybe haven't done properly on the ground, sleeves rolled up for for a number of years. And yeah, and going to Joe's point, I mean, I think he was slightly generous there. <laughs> I, I knew nothing about producing. <laughs> I mean, honestly, like. I, I mean, I, I did the stage one course, but only at the very last minute as, and Joe and uh, Joe uh, helped me get on it. But I, I didn't have a mentor. I didn't do any of that formally. You know, uh, my my journey was very different, but ultimately it did end up going through a, a, a similar but less formalised process where I did have mentors on the job training. And right. That those people have turned into, you know, collaborators, but also my business partner. And mm-hmm. I was fortunate in that respect. Um Although I used to sit in meetings not knowing what the hell was going on, but that's all. (laughs) But um, I always tell the story about how everyone thought I was just serious and pensive because I wrote everything down in my book, but that's because I was just going back that night trying to work out what everything meant. Um, (laughs) But that's why, that's why things like stage one are so important, you know, to provide that opportunity, no matter what your background and no matter where where you come from and no matter what your level of experience is, if you've got, if you've got the drive and the tenacity and the desire to do it, then stage one is a really good way of helping you in, in very specific steps to get there. And then Joe's right. You don't need to go step, 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 and then jump to the top of the stairs. If stage one's guided you through three steps, then he's right. The next step actually is, 
you know, a mentor who is maybe a couple of rungs above you. And then maybe the next step is some experience with someone who's a couple of rungs above that. And, you know, I do a lot of mentoring now for, for people and I really enjoy it. But, you know, I'm that that's what I've been able to do in the pandemic. And maybe I wouldn't be able to do that always. So it's not always possible, but there is a desire to do it. And actually, someone who works for us, Fiona Steed, is a really good example of how you can go through those steps. Yeah. And how you can start kind of on a really entry level and, and, and really work your way through. And she started off as um, a stage one apprentice. You know that. You know mm. that's how I got to know her in 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 a, in a previous organisation I worked for. And then we just stayed in touch. And, and there was the, the right moment to say to her, "Do you want to come and work with us?" And um, yeah, yeah. And, and she's really she's really flourished and developed. I mean, it's been tough the last year, but that was certainly someone whatever the situations we weren't we weren't gonna let go of <laughs> i think this is the perfect time to play this game here so it's called radio play uh where we get to know you guys as more the people rather than you the producers so are you guys ready to play good thing all right this is radio play what time do you wake up in the morning Six forty-five. uh when the children get up <laughs> favorite lyric from a music theater song oh my god that's a really tough one um we're all stand together uh, from Billy Elliot. Blimey. Uh, I was going to say something from Sweeney Todd. Uh, nothing will hurt you, not while I'm around. Current favorite television show? Uh, Sopranos. Damn, you pinched it from me. Oh, you can say the same one. You can have it as well. Ozark, I'm really into. Okay, okay. A moment you wish you could relive. Uh, well, I think the Olivier night would be a good one to relive. I've got to say, that was a pretty extraordinary night. Yeah, I'm going to do two things. The Olivier night professionally, and I guess the birth of my first daughter. <laughs> okay, that's good. That's good, too. That's good, too. The two, two equal moments. Okay, yeah. uh, do you believe in love at first sight? Uh, yeah, fell in love with my wife at first sight, 100%. Yes, I do. I'm not going to give you the story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, what does a person need to be happy? Oh, what does a person need to be happy? Um, you know, I think fulfillment is, is really important and and and, um, and friends, you know? I think that's that's pretty good. If you've got those people then you, you, and those feelings, then you're in good shape. Uh, I think a, a big dose of um, empathy. Do ghosts exist? Oh, not in a physical form, but I do believe in energies. Okay. I'm gonna go no. Do aliens exist? Yeah, have to. Yeah, have to. <laughs> the both of you, they you couldn't ha you couldn't hold those answers in. You both had to right. say it at the same time. Okay, uh, you find a million dollars in a bag. Do you return it or keep it? Uh, you return. You definitely return it. How many windows are in New York City? Oh, ooh, I don't know. A uh, million and a half. Fifty million. Be able to fly or be invisible. Oh, I'd be able to fly. That'd be great. Oh, invisible. I love that idea. <laughs> a piece of art that changed your life. That come from away. Wow, I was going like visual art there. So I'm going to say... Uh, you could do that too. Michelangelo's David. Okay. Commission someone living or dead to create a piece of art for you. Who would it be? Ooh, commission someone living or dead. I'm so bad because I don't really know any artists. So that, oh, my, you know what? My parents, uh, oh no, uh, Rockwell, Norman Rockwell. I'd, I'd ask him to paint something for my parents. Well, that's lovely. 
Okay, I think I think in theatre world, Sam Shepard, what an enigma! I just think oh, so good, incredible. And I think in in kind of in art world, Stanley Spencer, the painter, he nice, was terrific. Okay, because I know you guys have both met a lot of famous people, and this will be our last question. So, who is the famous person you've met that has had the biggest impact on you? I've got a good story here. Uh, Steve Nash. Like the Steve basketball Nash. player? Yes. Who's oh, actually, cool. a, actually a very close friend of the family and uh, in New York sat opposite me at a lunch and said, you know what, John, I'm a six foot four uh, basketball player from Canada. He said, um, don't worry about trying to be what you're not. Celebrate your differences and try and just take one step forward every day. It doesn't have to be a big step, just one step forward every day. Wow. Yeah, love that. Wow, that's prophetic. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm just going to say, and it's not for wholly positive terms, uh, Dustin Hoffman, who, uh, like, uh, A, I think is a genius, a frustrating genius, but a genius. And um, B, <laughs> I think subtext. what I learned from him is, is, is um, patience. Oh, there you go. Well, that's Radio Play. Well, those are some really cool answers, guys. I really oh, like that. That was fun. That yeah. was fun. See, sometimes I think I should be starting off with this because it eases the room a bit more. Um, <laughs> so I have a uh, the question for both of you. But, John, when Jeffrey Richards emailed you about Bitter Wheat, you said yes to general managing it, but you also wanted to produce because you mentioned it's important to have skin in the game. So my yeah. question to you is, is, it a, is there an advantage to being a general manager and a producer? Does it make it easier or harder to have title of both roles? Some say the job is interchangeable, but I just want your both of your opinions on if you found there were advantages advantages or disadvantages to it um i think uh, I, I think for us we 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 like to we like to do both um there can, it can be good to have separation of course depending on how busy you are you know the more things you general manage the more staff you need um with bitter wheat in particular you know we wanted we 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 were excited by the project because of uh because of john malkovich we wanted to work with jeffrey we were happy to general manage it independently but me and joe have always felt it's important to have skin in the game you know, because by, you know, by our nature, we are producers. So if we see an opportunity we think could be commercially successful, we want to be a part of it. But also, I do believe that when you have money and significant money in a project, you just work slightly differently from a fiscal responsibility point of view. And that's not me saying that the general managers we've used over the years haven't, but, you know, you'll drill down into actually, instead of a, instead of a flight being a thousand dollars can it be eight hundred dollars you know instead of a instead of um, a hotel room being 115 pound can it be a hundred pound so i just think you drill down into those that minutiae which which actually can 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 make can mean the difference between a, a, a commercially successful project or not you know and i always work in this thing of it's not about pounds or pence really it's about percentages so a thousand to to eight hundred is only $200, which doesn't seem a lot, but actually it's 20%. So I think that's one of the reasons we we like to do it because, you know, you keep it in-house and you can just keep more of an eye on it. But they are interchangeable to some degree, I think, Joe, don't you? Yeah, I, you know, absolutely. And I, and I think that with, with Bitter Wheat, it was an interesting one. You know, uh, absolutely, mm-hmm. we wanted to take um, a producing position on the show. And, you know, and, and what goes with that, to speak to John's, John's kind of stuff is, you know, a responsibility that goes beyond being a gun for hire, because you're responsible for the investors who've who've trusted you as a producer to bring their money into the show and represent them. 
um, and represent their money. And I think that's a bigger responsibility in some senses than than being paid X thousand pounds a week to to manage the show, if you see what I mean. Which is a service a service provision, if you see what producing is not a service provision. No. Producing is risk. That's what it is. You know, and and reward, but ultimately it's risk and responsibility. And I think with that, look, you know, to be really clear, it wasn't an ego leg decision. It wasn't that we wanted a voice at the table. We knew that Jeff more or less was leading on the project, but he wasn't going to be able to be in the UK very much. And we also wanted a mandate on that project that when the actors, the creative team, whoever it else was, needed to talk to someone, they weren't just talking to a general manager, they were talking to one of the producers as well. So when you've got an absent producer like that through no fault of his own he was just very busy with seven other broadway plays right you know he needs to know and you need to know that you've got um you've got their back but you've also got the mandate and i think it's very difficult to have that mandate if you're just managing the show and i think that goes with come from away as well seeing randy would never have produced that show in the uk without a full uk partner to lead with them it's because right. they knew they couldn't be around, and B, they needed to know there was someone there they trusted and knew could um, be a kind of independent producing voice that represents, you know, everyone who puts money into that show. Whereas the manager will do a brilliant job and Playful will do a brilliant job, but but the but the job stops at the end of the management. <laughs> like the producer's the owner of the show, isn't it? In yes. a way, right? Yeah. And and the general manager runs the every day today type thing. Not yeah, look, and you're a director of the company, you're a shareholder of the company. You know, if the proverbial shit hits the fan, it's your it's, it's on you. Your responsibility, yeah. And I sometimes feel like producers are seen as like the monopoly guy with his hands full of cash and always ready to give someone two hundred dollars when you're ready to pass go. And the more I speak to the producers, the more I realize it's quite literally not the case. So, what do you think the biggest misconceptions of producers are? Well, I think that is a big one. I think that's a massive one, you know. Mm-hmm. I, it's it's quite warm here, so I don't have my fur on. But do you know what I mean? Like that's, <laughs> I do think that's a big one. I think that you know, there's this misconception that we're all we're making a lot of money, that we're that we're we're led by money, that you know, we we, uh, and I'm not saying always, but that you know, we, you know, that we don't uh, we we don't think of the you know the feelings and the thoughts and the lives of the people who work for us. But you know, what I would say is that at the end of the day, we're all in this industry. You know, we don't, we, we, <laughs> no one comes into this industry as a producer thinking that you're gonna become Cameron, right? A billionaire, right? You come in with aspirations, but you know, that's, that's a, that's a far flung kind of dream. You come into this industry because you want to produce work and you want to put work on stage for an audience. And at the end of the day, you can manage that, you know, one of two ways. And, and, and you can manage that by being, distant from the process or part of the process you know me and joe uh very much like randy and sue you know we're you know we're we are pretty direct pretty straightforward and honest people and we're very fair you know that doesn't mean we're pushovers and we're certainly not you know and if we feel someone has slighted us then 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 we will push back on that but at the end of the day we are fair and we want to put good work on stage now yeah. we're also commercial producers, so we want to make money from it, and uh, you know the money is uh, in Campbell's case a byproduct of that, but it doesn't start with that. You know, it really doesn't. It starts with wanting to put good work on stage. Yeah, and I, look, and I think um, in any other walk of life, business-wise, if someone said to you, "You're going to start," in, you know, in a in a ten-year period, you're going to start ten businesses or ten productions, and seven of those are going to 
be a failure and maybe if you're lucky two or three of them are going to succeed you know if it was like widgets 10 different sorts yeah. of widgets the seven were a disaster and three just about scraped through recouped and made a little bit of money it wouldn't be a business you go into no so no the common you know misconception is is that somehow or other we're all massively wealthy and, and in some senses to speak to the point about cameron and andrew lloyd weber and you know the Netherlands or whatever you know they're, they're a you know they're, they're not the industry they're 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 the examples of people who've made it so stratospherically but actually there's the big rump of producers are are living project to project and and day to day you know that's right like any other job you know that it's paycheck to paycheck they're the ones who are making the ladder that I that we were talking about before exactly. that we yeah, that we're stepping up, right? Yeah, they're yeah, the ones absolutely. Who are making the ladder. Yeah, yeah. Just yeah. as just as a disclaimer, though, that's not our that's not our current record, by the way. Yeah, no, no, no. I was about uh, to say, just just, just re looking over what I was just reading. I'm like, man, uh, seven for three. That's not you guys. I'll tell no, you yeah, that. Yeah, but you know, but we've certainly struggled, and you know, we, we you certainly have to make do. I mean, like that's. You know that's that's how it is. You know, and yeah. and and you know, I was I was still teaching up until two and a bit years ago when I was trying to do a deal with John <coughs> Malkovich's agent when I was sitting on a hallway floor after taking a drama class, and I thought yeah. well, this is just this is just ridiculous. But and I didn't need to teach at that point. I was doing it out of love. But my mindset was also well, I've been hustling for so many years. I might need this backup. So it it, it it's all it's always there in a sense as well. Yeah, but until absolutely. until it's not there anymore. But it, it it that doesn't come that quickly. It's innately mm-hmm. just a feeling, you know. And right, I, right. I think, and I think that um, for all the successes we've had, we've had kind of tricky patches as well. I mean, the company was nearly insolvent when we produced a tour of Gaslight by Patrick Hamilton about four years ago. And had that project not worked uh, on the road, and and it mm-hmm. did work, but it did really well, and was the cornerstone of how the company then sprang on to having the bandwidth and financial ability to 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 work on um uh, come from away and true west and you know right. on there uh you know we, it would it would have been a different story you know so so everyone's got you know you look at the credits and you think wow there's some really cracking shows in there but 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 every show tells a story and those stories aren't always the great reviews those shows are often you know, even the ones that get great reviews sometimes have been a real, real tough sell and a, and a tough thing to work on. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So for the both of you, I read in an article uh, with the stage that Joe, you, that Joe did, and you said, every producer wants to be considered successful, both creatively and financially. But the real challenge in this business is to survive and to be able to reinvent yourself. The industry is changing all the time and you have to change with it, whether it's about the ways of selling tickets, new union regulations, or dreaming up new ways to raise money. So what do you think, what do you both think the future of the industry is? Uh, well, I, I would say, and like, you know, this is interesting coming from broadly speaking to white middle-aged men, but I think the combination of um, like Me Too, the combination of everything that's that's come from the George Floyd situation and now this pandemic is going to see a much broader focus on inclusiveness in the industry. Mm-hmm. And and I think that, that that has and will continue to touch the commercial sector. And I don't think the commercial sector... Um, with this sea change culturally, it, it, it's not going to be enough to just say, 
we're here to make money or we're here to, you know, you put a star on stage or whatever. I think that that all those awakenings are going to have to feed into how we all work as an industry. And it's going to kind of bring the commercial and the subsidized sector closer together. And, you know, as organizations, we're going to have to look outside of, you know, the access work I do, for example, with stage one, we're going to have to look to a broader ability to create a legacy in the industry for people who've traditionally been underrepresented. And yeah, we're here to make money. Yeah, we're here to put shows on. Yeah, we're here to, you know, get the turnstiles working and get tickets sold and bums on seats. But I think there's going to have to be a a, a new consciousness that develops. I think this isn't about going, oh, let's put on lots of plays by black writers, for example, or what, no. you know, in a really kind of simplistic approach like that. It's about actually looking at the whole project and looking at what the opportunities are for a broader range of people to be involved in that, both front stage, on stage, in the producing offices and all that kind of stuff. Because I think if we broaden the kind of demographic of people who work specifically in the producing industry, for example, which let's face it on Broadway and, and, and in London, it's got to be 90, 90, 98%, 99% white. Oh, it's bad, yeah. Probably well over 50% male. Mm. Uh, you know, if that can be broadened, then the work will change. There'll be more opportunities and all that kind of stuff. So I think we have a responsibility as kind of white men to, 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 to at the very least kind of be part of that change, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think the top of the triangles needs to, you know, stop protecting itself. And it needs to look at how we make that, the triangle, if the industry is a triangle, how we make that triangle more inclusive. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, to Joe's point, you know, as as white men, we have to realise that that we're, we're the people who can help facilitate the change, but we're not the people who can direct the change because it's not our circle. It's right. not our circle of empathy. We don't understand it. So, you know, there's no point a load of us sitting around the table and going, what's right? Well, that's just patronising. And ultimately, it's still about keeping the control. The thing you need to right. do is you need to you need to be honest. You know, producers are meant to be brilliant at choosing people to do the job. Well, we have to accept that we are not the right people to do this job. And we need to reach out to people who it directly affects and ask them to help us to make this an industry that's not more inclusive. It's more important to make this an industry that a more diverse and equal demographic want to be a part of. Yes. That's also so important. It's not just about saying we're ready to welcome you because that is patronising. It's about saying, how can we make this industry more welcoming for you because you need to be a part of it if we are going to survive? Mm-hmm. that's that's just it i think and 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 it's and we and everyone's struggling with it and you know and 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 we'll we'll get there but we'll only get there if we work democratically and together it's the only yeah. way we're going to get there you know so mm-hmm. i think that's the move forward and i think you know i think it's really important that we look at how 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 young diverse audiences feel when they come into west end theaters you know how do they feel how do they feel when they come in? And if they don't feel comfortable, then we need to know why. And we, again, we need to change. Absolutely. To make it, to make it a, a better environment and a better industry. Absolutely. I think that's the perfect way to end the show. Gentlemen, I appreciate you both so much. This was such a fun time. I'm so happy I got to talk to the both of you and both of your successes and your invaluable insights. I know our listeners will be, will be very, very thankful for that. Uh, but thank you so much for coming on the show and we'll speak to you guys soon. 
Take care. Thank you very much. Thank you. This has been a Brown Stuff production. 